Welcome to Bible study. We're continuing our 10-part series tonight entitled Living from the New Heart. Last week was an introduction. We talked about uh, how we have been called to live from our new heart. And uh, we talked about the difference between uh, religion and reliance, how you can tell if you're following a religion or relying on the finished work of Jesus. Tonight in part two, we're talking about the perfect heart. We've been called and invited to live from the new heart, and that new heart is a perfect one. It's complete. It's perfectly complete. It's not lacking anything. And as we grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, we will grow in the knowledge and wisdom of what we have, what he purchased for us on the cross. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything less than what Jesus paid for, right? I mean, we, we have that mindset as a consumer. If we pay for a good or a service, we want to get what we paid for. And uh, we want to get our money's worth. Well, I want Jesus to get his sufferings worth. He suffered and died so that we could have it all. And I don't want any less than that. And I trust that uh, the same is true for you. So we have this perfect heart. We have this new heart, this complete heart. And we're called to live from that heart because God lives in that heart. That's why we're invited to live from it, because God lives in it. God could have chosen to live anywhere, but he chose to dwell inside of you. Does God dwell in heaven, in the supernatural realm? Yes, God is spirit. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so God does indeed dwell in heaven, in the supernatural realm, but he also dwells in the heart of every believer. He doesn't live in the heart of every person. Only those who believe, only those who are born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, uh, can inherit the kingdom, can have the king of the universe living in them. Um, only those who have been perfected can have a perfect, holy God living in them. And so God chose to dwell in you, and because he chose to dwell in you, he made you a perfect dwelling for himself. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 48. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made of hands. In the Old Covenant, God literally lived in the temple. His presence was there in the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died, the veil to that Holy of Holies was torn in half. And God's presence left that one locality and spread throughout the whole earth. But he says, God doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. The prophet said this, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. 
What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Uh, Or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? So God is the creator of all things. He's everywhere at once, all the time. And he doesn't dwell in houses. He dwells in people. Uh, Go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. As you come to him, Peter says, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God and chosen and very precious. You yourselves are like living stones. Look at this. Being built up as a spiritual house. Why? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God chose to dwell inside of you. And he has made for himself there a perfect dwelling. Your new heart is a perfect home for the Spirit of God. Let's take a few moments to talk about design. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Oh, let's go back to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. Remember I said I want, to, I want all that Jesus paid for. He's provided this beautiful gift to us, this new heart. And uh, I have it and I want to know it. So uh, we were saved, not of our own doing. It's a gift from God and it's definitely not a result of works so that no one can boast. Here's our text, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Some translations say craftsmanship. Um, And we are created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, and that is to do good works. Peter said we were We are like living stones being built together to be a spiritual dwelling for a purpose that we can offer sacrifices to God that are acceptable to him. And here Paul says to the Ephesians that we are his workmanship for a purpose and those purposes are for good works. That God prepared beforehand that we should actually walk in them, uh, that we should live in them, that we should do them. He didn't just prepare them so that they would go unused, he prepared them so that we would do them. We're designed for a purpose. We are not just manufactured in Christ. That word workmanship refers to being designed and developed and created and engineered, not just manufactured. We weren't uh, a result of an assembly line process. God has actually worked and designed and crafted and engineered us so that we would be completely different than what we were. We're not just what we were, but a little better. We're something completely different. We're brand spanking new, and we don't depreciate. We retain our value because we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Okay, so 
If we're recreated, if we're actually the workmanship, the design of our creator as a born-again believer, if we're recreated in Christ for good works, uh, then what does that say about our design? It says that you are good and want to do good. And... uh, We don't always think about ourselves that way. We don't always think of ourselves as good. We think of ourselves as kind of bad or okay or not as bad as we used to be. Uh, But we're actually good. If we're a believer, if we've taken Jesus... He's taken us and he's recreated us and made us good and he's given us new desires. I I bring it up a little later, but I'll refer to it now. There's this idea floating around out there and it's a a bad idea. I think it's well-intentioned, but it's a bad idea because it it leads us to a bad conclusion. And uh, that is that when, when God sees us, he sees Jesus. Uh, that God looks at us through a Jesus lens. Nothing in the scripture tells us anything remotely close to that. When God sees us, he sees a new creation. He sees the workmanship of Christ, but he sees us, and he loves us and calls us good. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. Make no mistake about that. We are not good in and of ourselves. Because we've been recreated and redesigned in Christ, God sees us as good. Remember when he created mankind? He said it is very good. Sin entered the picture and messed everything up. But now that we've been redesigned and born again, God can once again look at us and say, very good. Okay, Uh, Luke chapter 6, 43 to 45. Jesus is talking about the tree and its fruit. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, who's good? You, me. The born-again believer. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Look, we talked about last week in Romans chapter 6 how God has made us perfectly obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we have committed. Our obedience from the heart is perfect. And look at what Jesus says. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. It's a guarantee. I know you, and you know me, and we're real human. And we make mistakes all the time. But those mistakes aren't coming from our heart. They're coming from our hands and our head. What we do and what we think when we give into and yield to the power of sin that is still in the world. But look at what Jesus says. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart. 
We said at the beginning, God dwells in our heart. He is the treasure that is contained there. And from that place produces good, fruit to God for his glory. The evil person, the unbeliever, out of the evil treasure, sin, and the old nature, produces evil. And they can do nothing but. Just like the good person can't produce bad fruit because it's coming from the heart, neither can the evil person produce good fruit. Our heart's been redesigned. Therefore, it is good, and good comes from it. Everything you need for life and godliness is found in Christ. We often feel, I underlined that word feel in my notes, we often feel and are even told that living from the new heart is an uphill battle because it's striving against ourselves. Have you ever felt like you're striving against yourself? I have. I feel that way less now that I know the truth, but I often found that this Christian life was an uphill battle because I didn't know the whole truth. I believed my feelings rather than the facts. I thought that I had two natures at war with me, within me, that I had my new nature and my old nature, and that at the moment I was saved, uh, that old nature was killed, but he came back to life the next day. And uh, that there was this constant battle going on within me between my new nature and my old nature. Uh, it's, not, it's not good theology to believe that because it means that Jesus can't finish the work he started. That we're not really born again. That we're not really new creations. If Christ is living in you, your old nature can't live in you simultaneously. If it can, then Christ is incompetent. And we really shouldn't be calling ourselves Christians. We should just go and do our own thing. But we believe that he is the head and rule of all authority. That he can do anything and everything. And so if he lives in us and recreated us, um, then that old nature is gone. It's dead and gone and never coming back to life. First uh, Peter 2.11. Let's, let's uh, flip there real quick. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That bad theology I was talking about is built on this verse. But look what Peter's saying here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. The flesh is not the heart. Your soul is not your spirit. Sometimes in the New Testament, because of the English translation, the words are used interchangeably. But here, uh, the word soul is the Greek word psyche. It's our thinking. It's, our, um, it's the seat of our emotions. And so Peter is saying, you have passions of the flesh, things you want to do, Maybe it's old habits that you had before you were saved. Or maybe it's the temptation to do something different. 
Uh, but whatever it is, that's a passion of the flesh, and that's at war against your new way of thinking, right? You know the word uh, repentance is the Greek word metanoia, and it literally means to change your mind. Meta meaning mind, and noia referring to the changing or the reversing of one's mind. To repent means to change your mind. So when we're saved, our heart gets changed, and then we are transformed by the what? Renewing of our mind. So what you think you'll do. James says each person sins when they are dragged away and enticed by sinful passions. And then when that temptation is conceived in the mind, then it gives birth to sin. So there's this pattern of temptation. And then immediately when we're tempted, we have a decision to make. And where are decisions made? Decisions are made in the mind. We have a decision to make. Are we going to uh, abstain and resist because that's not who we are in the heart? Or are we going to give into it because that's who we used to be and we think we'll like it and enjoy it, but we never do? Maybe in the moment, but as soon as the moment's gone, we realize that's not me. So that's what this striving is. The striving is not your old nature and your new nature. That's already taken care of. That battle's over. Jesus won. But there is an ongoing battle, and it's between your um, mind that is being renewed and your old patterns of thinking and acting. And so as we abstain and as we resist and as we say yes to grace that teaches us to say no, uh, we will build a pattern and a habit of godly living in our members, in our hands and feet, in our eyes and our ears and our mouth. We'll act different because our mind is being renewed by the word. So if you've ever felt at war with yourself, there is a war, but it's not between your old nature and new nature. Living an upright godly life is only easy and light when our calling and our design match perfectly. Can you imagine if we were called to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, uh, but we had to be the ones to conform ourselves to that holiness? <laughs> We'd never do it. We would always fall short. So our calling to be holy and our calling to live upright godly lives and our calling to abstain from the passions of the flesh and our calling to put off all the old ways is only possible because we've been redesigned. And because our calling and our design match, we can live this easy and light life, especially as we build a pattern and a habit of making the conscious choice to say yes to grace uh, when we are tempted rather than saying yes to sin. Have you ever heard it said, I've got it all up here. I just got to get it down here. I just got to get it in my heart. Again, bad theology. It's backwards. 
we do need to make that, I think, I don't know who called it that, the 16-inch journey from your head to your heart. We do need to make that journey. It just needs to go back the other way. It needs to go from our heart to our head. The Bible never talks about renewing our heart, right? It always talks about renewing our minds. That's what Romans 12 and 2 says. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be changed and transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're still experiencing the renewing of our minds. That's a process that is in progress. Remember, Dad used to talk about the 80-year plan. When you get saved, you get put on the 80-year plan to be transformed into the image of Jesus. God is patient. We're not so patient, but God is patient, and he will get us there if we obey him and we'll get into the word. You can't renew your mind with the philosophy of man. You can't renew your mind with the opinions of celebrity pastors. You can't renew your mind with uh, the policies of politicians. You can only renew your mind with the word. With the word. So stop trying to get it from your head to your heart. It's futile. It's already in your heart. Work to get it upstairs. We're learning and growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Where does knowledge take place? It takes place in the mind. So we're learning and growing in the knowledge of Jesus, but we actually do have all we need deep down in our hearts. It's the renewing of our thought life that is in process. Now, in the culture today, you hear a lot about you have everything you need. You are enough. It's, it's just deep down inside you. You've got to unlock it. That's not what I'm saying here. You, me, in and of ourselves, we are not enough. Never have been, never will be. Christ is our sufficiency. I'm okay with not being enough. I've tried to do it on my own. You've tried to do it on your own. And I think you've come to the same conclusion I have. It doesn't work. We don't get very far. I've, uh, I've resigned to the fact that I am not enough in and of myself. My sufficiency comes from Christ. He is all that I need. And I have all that I need in him deep down in my heart of hearts because he's given me a new heart. Now I just need to renew my thinking and conform my thinking to the scriptures and I will begin to unlock that and live it out more fully. Let's talk about having a heart attack. It seems like there's an attack on believers' hearts these days. The enemy appears to have convinced many Christians that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. The Bible does call the heart of man desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? The words of the prophet Jeremiah. That is true of every unbeliever's heart. Every unbeliever's heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all. But the believer's heart is not. The believer's heart is perfect and obedient and is the dwelling place of God. But Satan likes to attack the heart. The Bible talks about guarding your heart. Why? Because that's where God lives. He is capable of staying there and 
and guarding that place, but we are also call, called to participate with him in that, to guard our heart above all. Because that's where Satan shoots his fiery darts. Uh, that's why we need the breastplate of righteousness and the armor of God. What does the breastplate cover our heart? So the righteousness that we have from the heart is protected. And then, of course, we have the shield of faith for double protection to raise against the enemy's attacks. But so many Christians have succumbed to the attack of the enemy because they never pick up the sword of the Spirit. They don't know what they have. They're weak Christians. We've even been told to think that it's humble to see ourselves as, as desperately wicked. We've been told that it's humble to see ourselves as just sinners saved by grace. We were a sinner and we have been saved by grace and now that we have been saved by grace, we are saints of God. Our old identity is long gone. Stop going back to your past for your identity. Okay? Be who God says you are and live the way he says you can live right now. I think there's this tendency, there's been this tendency within the church over the last few decades to try to find things in common with the world. And so I think we go back to our old identity, trying to find some common ground with the world. I want you to know that we have nothing in common with them anymore. There's no overlap. There's no commonality. The megachurch pastors and the celebrity pastors with book deals and the Christian influencers on Instagram, they want you to find something in common with your unsaved neighbor. There's nothing there. Spiritually, there's nothing in common anymore. You might like golf or fishing or uh, baking bread or something. I don't know. Like You can have those things in common, but... Spiritually, you have nothing in common anymore. Stop pretending or acting like you do when you don't. Satan loves it when we act like um, we have something in common with the world. Real humility is saying the same thing about ourselves that God says. We should say nothing more about ourselves than God says, and we should say nothing less about ourselves than God says. If if you truly want to understand your new heart, then you need to inquire of the one who designed it and gave it to you. And that is the God of the universe. And only the God, or sorry, only the word of God can give you an accurate answer. Here's a little heart exam you can give yourself from time to time. Two questions you can ask. Can I trust it? And do I really want to sin? Okay, so... Uh, Question number one, can you even trust your heart? Well, you can't trust your old heart. So if you're an unbeliever uh, tonight, which I don't think you are, maybe if you're listening uh, on podcast, you might be. Um, if you don't have a new heart, you can't trust it. But you can trust your new heart. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions 
of the heart. So there we see those two words that we often use interchangeably, but they're two different words, soul and spirit. The word soul there is the word psyche, uh, meaning your mind and, and the seat of your emotions. And then spirit here is the Greek word pneuma, which refers to your inner being. Uh, and pneuma is the same Greek word that is used for Holy Spirit, okay? Um, so there's that difference. Just wanted to point that out. The Word of God, the Bible, the written Word, and Jesus, the living Word, okay? It is a sharp, two-edged sword, and it is able to divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it can actually discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only the word can, can tell us where a person's heart is. And if someone has truly taken Jesus, their heart is brand new. The actions don't always show it. Give it time. Be patient. As God is patient. That's why James says that we should confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we might overcome sin. Uh, the answer to this question, can you trust your heart, isn't found in your past experiences or your most recent performance or even the way you feel currently. You may feel as if you can't trust your new heart. Things you've done in your past may suggest that you shouldn't trust your heart. But we're not asked to look at our track records. Instead, the author of Hebrews tells us that if we want to know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, there's one place to look. That's the word of God. And then finally, can you, or sorry, do you want to sin? Do you want to sin? Go over a few chapters to chapter 8 and verse 10. Here again, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Jesus is uh, predicted. He's prophesied. Many predictions and prophecies about him. And this is one such prediction and prophecy. Uh, verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And, of course, we know that it wasn't just with national Israel, but with all people. But that's what the prophet prophesied at that time. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more. If your sins are coming to your remembrance, God's not the one bringing them up. Satan is. He is the accuser. Day and night, the Bible says, he accuses you. But God does not. He's been merciful towards you. He's given you this great gift, this brand new heart. He doesn't remember your sins against you anymore. He's actually put his laws on your minds and written them on your hearts. God decided to write his desires on your new heart so you would truly want what he wants. Most Christian teaching starts with the premise that you're bad, that you want to sin but you shouldn't, uh, that, you, that you want to sin but you're not supposed to. And so we always feel bad, we always feel guilty. 
And you feel guilty long enough, you will give up. However, every ounce of instruction in the New Testament tells us um, that we are perfect on the inside, that we already have everything we need. Each instruction, or with each instruction rather, God is simply saying, here's the way to express the deep heartfelt desires I implanted in you. It's God saying, if you would abstain from that and stay away from that and not do that, you'll actually live the deep, satisfying, uh, fulfilling life that I have planned for you. But if you keep going back to that old stuff, you're going to find yourself um, hurting, broken, alone, unfulfilled, and so these, these commands, these instructions, these prescriptions, these things fulfill you and they meet the needs of those around you. Check out those scripture passages later. So this is the gospel truth about who you really are. You are brand new. Brand new. Jesus paid the price, but... That price was not the cost of designing a specialized filter for God to look through. Remember I said, we often think that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And when he, when he, when he looks at us, he sees us, the born-again us, because of Jesus. Jesus didn't come so that God could have a new pair of glasses to wear through which to look at us. He paid the price and the cost of fundamentally redesigning who we are at our very root, which is our heart, which is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and of spirit. It was the cost of making you genuinely forgiven, genuinely righteous, and genuinely good. These are not just positions, but they're actually true of us. Sometimes we have to rely on the fact that we are positionally righteous because we're not acting like it. <laughs> right? But we're not just positionally righteous. We're actually righteous. We're actually good. We're actually forgiven. And that's a wonderful life to 